Well, if you want to begin uh, to open your Bible or your phone and go to the book of Leviticus, we're going to continue our study there. We'll look at a couple of places in Exodus, a couple in Numbers. We'll turn around a few places, but Leviticus 1 will be a good place to start. If you did not receive one when you came in, you may want to grab that half sheet of paper on the back. Even if you're not a big note person, uh, there's a picture on the back of that note sheet that might be helpful for you as we, as we go through our, our time. So wanted you to know that that was, that was available. So Leviticus chapter 1. Before we get into... Uh, before we get into our study tonight, we want to take time to be able to pray together, share together about, about God's work in our church and our lives. Selfish plug, but a week from tomorrow, we're doing uh, a potluck, pastor's potluck. Uh, it's a senior adult potluck, but we're going to let you determine whether or not you're eligible for that. Uh, we were going to call it the 50 and over potluck, but that makes Jim eligible for it, and so we felt bad about that. So, uh, you know, 50-plus ministry has changed now that Jim made it uh, to, to 50. It's kicked up a little bit at that, at that point. So it is going to be a good time. If you are available during the day next Thursday, we'd love for you to come and, and be part of that. Unfortunately, Jim's not going to be here, so he can't be our guest speaker, but we're going to still have a good time. We'll, we'll enjoy it. We'll be in the, in the fellowship, uh, fellowship Hall, Fellowship Center doing that, so want to make sure you're aware of that. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this Sunday during our Sunday morning worship gathering, so hope you can be, be part of that as well. Prayer, how can we pray for one another? Things that are going on maybe in your life or in the church, updates, things like that. Yes, Dean. Okay, uh, Stu and Debbie, Stu and Debbie Tolley, their granddaughter Lucy Bell, who many of you know, she's back in the hospital now. So continue to pray for, for Stu and Debbie, and that's just an ongoing uh, challenge for for their family. But continue to pray for them. Yes, John. Oh, praise God for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll just sing that last song together if Jordan comes back in here. So praise, praise the Lord for that. That's, that's fantastic. That's really great. So pray for Justin Roxy and, and little Ruby as she goes in for some tests. She's going to see the neurologist in the morning, okay. I know Emmaus has played, prayed for Ruby a lot uh, from the very beginning, so continue to pray for her as she, she goes in for that test. The, the Stegner family who lost the little Gideon who was eight days old, that funeral service is going to be on Saturday the 29th, so the last Saturday of, of this month, I still haven't heard a final time. They were going back and forth between 10 and 11, and so once we know for sure, but it'll be the morning of, of the 29th, so I want you to know about that. Yeah. 
Yes. Okay. You guys that uh, that know Andrew Armstrong, Bob was saying that Andrew's grandfathers are both in the hospital, and so praying for Andrew and Elizabeth and their family. Those of you guys that know uh, Steve Spiegel has been diagnosed with, what did you say? Kidney cancer. Okay. I know it's hard to hear in the back. Sound doesn't travel great. All right. Well, let's, let's take some time to pray together as a, as a church, and then we'll, we'll get into our Bible study tonight. Father, thank you for the ministry that happens uh, through gathering to eat. God, thank you for those that, that work in the, in the kitchen, that prepare and clean and, and minister through that. God, we thank you for the choir as they've gathered tonight to, to grow in faith and worship together. Father, we pray for the preschool and kids ministry as they're learning and building relationships. God, thanks for Jaron and the ministry that he has with our students. God, thank you for Jordan being here to lead them in music and invest in those students' lives, God, the gift that that is. Father, I pray that you would continue to grow us together as a church as we uh, serve together, as we worship together. God, that you would continue to build those relationships throughout the body. Father, we pray for uh, church members who are hurting right now because of things going on with their families, things going on uh, with work situations, Father, that you would bring hope and, and healing to those situations. Uh, God, we celebrate those times of your healing and power for, for the stoles and the, the gift of, of that celebration, God, with the great report from doctors. God, we pray for those that are going to doctors and maybe the report's not what they would have wanted or expected, God, that you would bring comfort and peace in those situations. Continue to be with the Stegners as they move through the pain of, of Gideon's death and how to mourn and heal together. And God, I pray for that funeral service at the end of the month that people would be here who would hear the gospel maybe for the first time or that you would use the situation to, to draw them back to yourself and show them the hope of salvation. So God, I pray tonight as we look at a section of scripture that we're often quick to skip over, God, that you would use this in our lives individually, you would use this in our church and God, that our time of looking at scripture would be just continued worship before you tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we go. Last week we introduced it, tonight we get into it. So we're going to try, not try, we're going to succeed studying through the book of Leviticus uh, as, as a church. So let's just start out by looking at Leviticus chapter 1 and reading through the first portion of this, and then we'll back up and take a running, uh, a run through it. Okay, Leviticus 1.1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, 
When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Verse 8, And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Then, 10 through 13, discuss what you're going to do if you're going to take the animal from the flock, from the sheep or the goats. 14 through 16, or through 17, discuss what you're going to do when you have a bird uh, or a pigeon. And then you get to the very end of the chapter. Look at the final sentence when chapter 1 ends. It's a reminder that it is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, what's, what's going on here? Go back to the very beginning. Verse 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him. We think of the book of Leviticus as a series of sacrifices and instructions about the law. And it is that. But the best you can in your mind as you think about the book of Leviticus, try to reframe the book of Leviticus in your mind as the book where God speaks directly to his people. Because in the book of Leviticus, you get the Lord speaking to his people directly more in a concise way period of time than you do almost anywhere else in, in Scripture. Now, certainly the, the Bible is the Word of God, so it's always God speaking to us, but in terms of just direct commands given to the people, the book of Leviticus is absolutely full. And remember, when you talk about the law that God gave to the people, so those first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus comes in the middle, not because it's the middle child that got lost. It comes in the middle because it's most important. We think of middle as insignificant, middle kid that got left out. The people at that time would have thought of the middle as the mountain. This is God's instructions, God's plan coming to the tip of the mountain, coming to a head for the people. So when you think of Leviticus, are there a lot of instructions? Yep. Are there a lot of offerings? Yep. What's it really about? It's God speaking to his people about his plan, about his glory, about how they can be made right with him. So, so from the very beginning, remember the book starts with the Lord called Moses and spoke to him. Where? From the tent of meeting. Sometimes called what we refer to as the tabernacle that's going to be the foundation or the, the frame for what's going to be the temple later. On the back of your note sheet, is the most simple, clean layout. You can find pictures of this in different places, but this is a very clean layout of the basic idea for the, uh, for the tabernacle or, the, or this um, whole area, this tabernacle court. 
And then the tent of meeting being that more concise area there on the left side of your page, that, that rectangle there that you have divided into two places. The holy place, which is that first area that you would come to, and then the most holy place that the high priest would only enter once per year on the Day of Atonement. And so we'll get to that when we get to Leviticus chapter 16. But you would come into the court, and then you would bring your offering, and then you would come into the holy place, and then there's the altar of burnt offering just in front of providing that connection with the most holy place. Now I want to show you something really interesting. It looks completely insignificant, but it actually is the story of why the tabernacle mattered for the people. If you look on your picture, you have within the tent of meeting, within the holy place, you have a smaller rectangle that's called the table for bread. Help your neighbor if they can't find the table for bread, okay? So make sure your neighbor can find the table for bread, all right? So there's the table for bread. It's on the north side of the holy place. Opposite of that, within the holy place, is this lampstand. Uh, now, the inside of the holy place would have been coated in this gold bronze, so a light would have really given off an incredible splendor. I want to show you why this matters. Go back to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to look at two different places. So, Exodus chapter 25 is about setting up the sanctuary. You, you've got a good section there in Exodus chapter 25. Um, Exodus is the book just before Leviticus. So if you were in Leviticus, you were right, right beside where Exodus is located. So Exodus 25, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant. But then you get down to, chap, or to verse 23. So Exodus chapter 25, and you get down to verse 23... And it begins to talk about this table uh, where, where the bread is going to be laid out. And so from 23 down to verse 30, it talks about the, uh, the table for the bread. Verse 30 says, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. What's the very next section in your Bible? It's about the golden lampstand. So the table in Exodus 25 and the golden lampstand are meant to go together because you're going to get these instructions right after one another. Look what happens there in verse 31 of Exodus 25. If you don't have it open, just listen and we'll kind of walk through this. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. And then you get some more descriptions of how it's going to be set up. Go all the way down to verse 39. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. So this is a pretty stellar uh, lampstand. And see that you make it after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. And then you're going to 26, and you're going to get the introduction of how the tabernacle is made. Okay, so you've got that foundation. Now go over to the book of Numbers. Exodus, Leviticus, then Numbers comes after Leviticus. So we're going to go to Numbers chapter 8.
Numbers chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers, it was hammered work according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. You say, okay, why does that matter at all? Go back to your picture. So in your mind, in your mind, you have this beautiful lampstand made of gold with these seven lights that are facing outward. You go to where that lamp is on your picture. If that light is facing outward, what is it facing toward? Table for the bread, for the, the showbread. Do you know how many loaves were on the table? There's only a certain number of important numbers in the Bible, so you just pick like those Bible numbers and you're going to get there, but... Twelve, yes. So, you know, seven's always good, forty's always good, twelve's really good as a, as a Bible number. There are twelve. Why do you think there are twelve pieces of bread on the table? Twelve tribes of Israel. So it's the people of God represented by this bread that is laid out there on the table. In the Bible, what does fire and light generally represent? I know it feels weird saying it out loud in a big group, but what's it normally represent? It's the presence of God. It's his glory. It's his greatness. Where's his glory and greatness in the holy place shining? On the people. When you come into the holy place, what you have is you have this lampstand, and in Numbers chapter 8, God is very specific. Make sure those lights face outward. Make sure they face in front of the lampstand because when they do, the light is going to fall directly on the table with those 12 loaves of bread and is a picture for the people every time they come there of God's purpose that his glory, his presence would be on the people. There's a priestly blessing that's given to Aaron to be passed on to the people about how the Lord will make his face to shine upon you and give you peace, that blessing, that priestly blessing that you find a couple of places in the, New or in the Old Testament is the blessing that God's purpose for his world, God's purpose for his people is that his glory, his greatness, his face would be turned toward his people and that they would be able to live in his presence. Now, what is the only thing that could possibly make that plan go wrong? Sin. When we live in sin, we're not able to remain in that place. So what do you have just to the left going into the holy place from the lamp and the table of the showbread? You have this altar of burnt offering. What God is saying through the holy place is my purpose for all of creation my purpose for my people is that they would live in the light of my glory, that they would experience my greatness and my love and my peace, and that they would live there. But there, there are going to be times of sin when they're not able to be in my presence, when they're rebelling against me, and I've provided a way to deal with that 
so they can remain in my presence. I've made a way for that to happen. How is that? The book of Leviticus. <laughs> Ultimately, pointing to Jesus, that he would be the reason we're able to be made right with God. He's the reason we're able to be in his presence. So you go back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord calls Moses and speaks to him from the tent of meeting, from this place where his glory shines on his people and a way has been made right for those people to be back in relationship with him. And he says, when any, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering, Okay, there's going to be a few places, if, you're like a, if you like to underline in your Bible or highlight in your phone, if you want to do that. Burnt offering, that phrase is the first of five major sacrifices that are going to be described in Leviticus. There are, there are five major sacrifices. On your handy handout um, is a chart showing those five major sacrifices. We're going to do burnt offering today, kind of as an introduction to how this works. Next week, we're going to do the grain offering and the fellowship offering. The week after that, we'll do the purification offering and what's sometimes called the reparation offering, or there's other ways you can describe that. But there are five major offerings or sacrifices that are described in Leviticus. Each of them has a slightly different purpose, each of them is enacted or carried out in slightly different ways, and so you have to kind of follow the pattern to see how they're working. The reason that it can get so confusing when you're reading through Leviticus, you're like, what offering am I talking about again? Like, what sacrifices am I on, and what does this pertain to? And so we're going to try to wade through some of those details and describe what's going on here. Each of the offerings, the five major sacrifices, Jesus fulfills all of those. So you're going to find pieces of these offerings and sacrifices that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but each of them has different purposes right here. So we're going to, we're going to kind of work through these a piece at a time. The one tonight is called the burnt offering. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a meal without blemish. Once again, I know it feels strange talking in a a setting like this, but just, just think through this a second. What is the significance of that sacrifice being without blemish? What's, what's the purpose of that? Your finest, yeah, yeah. So it's ultimately going to point to Christ who came without blemish, without sin. In this context, it's definitely that this is the very best that you have to bring. You're going to bring what's costly. You don't give the Lord your leftovers. Um, which you don't have to be a preacher to go from that point to application in, in present-day life, to think about how often we're prone to give the Lord our leftovers. Like, do we really give him our best? Do we, do we give him something that is, is costly to us? Let me make a little connection here. Um, go over to 2 Samuel in your Bible. I know we're jumping around. You have to Find your way through your phone. It can get a little confusing. Second Samuel, you're going to go to the right. So you're going to get past Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Get little Ruth. And then you're going to start to get into 1 Samuel. Then it'll get you to 2 Samuel. 
2 Samuel chapter 24. So you're going to go to the very end of that book. I want us to think about this idea of a sacrifice being costly. That when you bring a sacrifice to the Lord, you bring your very best. You don't give him the leftovers. When, when Christ came, he came as a pure, costly sacrifice. How do you see this play out? The clearest place that you see this probably in the Old Testament is 2 Samuel chapter 24. So 2 Samuel 24, here's the short story. David takes a census of the people that he's not supposed to take. It's never 100% clear what's wrong with this census, but it has something to do with pride, without a doubt. There's something about this census. It's not ordained by the Lord. The Lord never tells him to do it. And, and there's something about it that's obviously prideful, and it's, it's a, a slap in the face of God's glory is what it comes down to. Well, God responds by bringing judgment on the people, and David realizes we've got to do something about this because I have obviously sinned before the Lord, and it's not just affecting me, but it's affecting everybody around me. Um, so you get to 2 Samuel chapter 24. Go down to verse 18. Chapter 24, verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. Now we're in verse 20 of chapter 24. Verse 20. When Arnah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Arnah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arnah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arnos said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering. There's our Leviticus connection. Um, and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arnos gives to the king. And Arnos said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Hey, that, that phrase will be important again here in just a second. May the Lord your God accept you. Verse 24, but the king said to Arnah, no, but I will buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings so the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. That phrase there in verse 24 is powerful. I will not offer off burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Uh, David realized that a life given to the Lord is a life that costs something. That there is sacrifice that comes with that. Ultimately, the sacrifice of Jesus that makes that relationship possible. But beyond that, for followers of Jesus, realizing this is a sacrificial path that we've been called to. It's a sacrificial life we've been called to. If we live for the Lord in such a way that it costs us nothing, we haven't fully lived for the Lord. That when we live for the Lord, there will be trials. There will be things that we encounter. There will be sacrifices we make. But they're sacrifices we make with joy because he is worthy of everything that we have to give. And so in the offering sacrificial system of the Old Testament, there's a lesson there that there are sacrifices to be made. We give of our very best. We give something that's going to cost us, um, which is a good chance to take 30 seconds and slow down and say, 
what am I offering to the Lord that really cost me something? When's the last time I took a step of faith? When's the last time I did something that was costly, that came with a price, but I knew it was exactly the path that God was calling me to take? And then you take a deep breath and say, Lord, give me the courage. Give me the strength to do that. Let me look toward Christ, what it looks like to, to go that path. And so as we think about these offerings and sacrifices, I want you to consider, what does it look like to live a life that costs you something? What does it look like to be a church where we say we're willing to make sacrifices that cost us something? No shortcuts, no giving God our leftovers. We're saying, Lord, here we are. You gave all to us, we will give all to you. We'll do something that costs us. Um, and before we come up with specific examples, <laughs> it's easy to want to go back to Leviticus chapter 1 and say, let's keep going, which we are. But I want that to hang over us for the, for the coming weeks. What does it look like to give ourselves fully to the Lord? All right, Leviticus chapter 1. Going back to how this offering happens. So the offering is a burnt offering in verse 3 of chapter 1. It's a burnt offering. It comes from the herd. It's a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Remember that phrase, accepted before the Lord, it was the same phrase that was used with David in 2 Samuel chapter 24. So coming before the Lord with this offering was the fact that you didn't just come into the Lord's presence however you wanted to. You didn't walk in there and say, God, sorry about what happened, really messed up back there, will you have me back? There was a sacrifice, there was an offering that had to be made. And so in order to be accepted by the Lord, you had to bring this offering. Go back up, though, to verse 2. I want you to see something back in verse 2. It says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Seems completely insignificant. But the word bring there is a word for cause to be drawn in. Here's what I mean by that. This is the Lord of his own initiative saying to the people who have sinned, I want you to come back in. I'm going to cause you to be drawn back in. The significance of that is without this sacrificial system, without this offering, there's no way for them to be made right with, with God. And so this whole system, this whole process of reading Leviticus, you can go back to the very beginning and see that God wants to be made right with his people. He wants to be in relationship with his people. He doesn't just kick them out and say, you're on your own now. He says, I've made a way for you to be restored with me. Now, it has to be my way. It's not a way that you make up. I'm going to give you the way to do that, but I desire for you to be drawn back to me. Bring this because this is my plan for you. So when you bring it, at the end of verse 3, it says that you may be accepted before the Lord. Verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. When you see that phrase, the word that comes to mind is the word substitution. Is the word substitution. This is what's called the handling or hand leaning part of the ceremony. The idea was that you would put your hand on that animal. And what has happened symbolically when you put your hand on that animal? 
this, that animal is standing in your place. Your sin, in some sense, is transferred. Now, you're going to see this really clearly when you get to the Day of Atonement uh, ceremony in Luke chapter, or not Luke, in Leviticus chapter 16. But what has happened is you've laid your hand on that animal, and that animal is now going to stand in your place. The beauty of that imagery is when we talk about Christ's death, it is a substitutionary death that he has died in our place, that he has taken upon himself what we deserve. So we deserve death as a result of sin. Jesus died in our place as our substitute. And so this hand placing on the animal is saying, that animal is now going to be in my place. What happens to that animal should have happened to me. So this animal is a type of, of ransom payment. Go, go to the next phrase there. So he's going to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, atonement is a million-dollar theology word. Um, there's a lot of debate about what this word means and, and how it functions. Um, sometimes it's a word used for covering over sin. Maybe the, maybe the best way to, to describe it is Atonement plays, plays two main roles. Atonement is designed to purge sin, to do away with sin in a situation. So, so the sin is going to be cleansed away. It's going, to be, it's going to be taken care of. But atonement also has to do with restoring the relationship. This is a little bit of a, an old preacher trick, and you've probably seen this with the word atonement. But if you look at the word atonement in your Bible, or I think it's on your piece of paper. Yeah, under there, kind of toward the bottom of your notes where it says make atonement. If you look at the word atonement and you break it into three parts, at one meant, at one O-N-E meant M-E-N-T. Just kind of have to break it up or use your pen and break it into three parts. Where that becomes helpful is the word atonement means we are restored or made at one with God. Things are put back to the way that they should be. Um, can you poke some holes in that? Sure, you probably can, but it works really well as a way to remember. When you see a confusing word like that, and you're like, I need something to help me remember what this means, that's a way to help to say it's a word for purging sin and then restoring the relationship. And in order for that to happen, there had to be a ransom payment made. Um, either you were going to give your own life or there was another payment that was going to happen in your place to take on that penalty that, that was due you. Another sacrifice is given, the animal is given in your place, and so you are restored to that relationship with God at one, made at one with him, the word atonement. Um, verse 5. So this is going to happen so you can make atonement, so you can be restored, so you can be forgiven. Verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. There are two words that are used in Hebrew for using blood in this situation. Sometimes it's the word sprinkled. This is for the word for slosh or, or throw large amounts. This is not sprinkle blood. This is gather the blood into a bucket. It, the only imagery I can come up with is imagine throwing paint 
against the wall out of a bucket and just letting it go. This is kind of the idea that's given here. It's not gentle sprinkling, sprinkling. It is, which lets you know as you begin to read through this, these priests were incredible butchers. Like they had some amazing skills. Because imagine how often they would do this. And the more you get into these, these sacrifices and offerings, you realize the, um, the skill level that it took to, to do this. And so the blood is thrown against the sides of, of the altar. What's the significance there? Well, just to kind of cut to it, the blood represents the life of, of the animal. And we're gonna, we'll talk about that more to come, but without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's a phrase that's taken from the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, but the giving of the blood is a way of saying this animal has given its life, and it's provided that covering, it's provided that cleansing. Um, like I said last week, if you're a little squeamish, the book of Leviticus can be kind of hard. <laughs> um, but this blood is thrown against the altar. Verse 6, then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Why cut it into pieces? Partly because it has to fit on the altar. That's honestly part of the reason that it's cut into pieces. And then we're going to find the other reason here in just a second. It's cut into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. Verse 9, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. Uh, lots of debate among commentators about why the entrails and, and the legs would be washed with water. Just think about an animal and why their legs would get dirty from time to time and you have your answer for almost certainly why it was washed with water that you wouldn't burn or give to the Lord something that was impure. And you can fill in the blanks. <laughs> you don't want to, I don't want to sound inappropriate, but there's a really straightforward reason why the legs get dirty on an animal. Um, and so they wouldn't want to offer that or burn that before the Lord, and so they would wash it before it was put on, on the altars, another form of purity, that we're offering a pure sacrifice to, to the Lord. Um, end of verse 9, and the priest shall burn all of it. That's a significant phrase because this is the only sacrifice you're going to find where the whole animal is consumed on the altar. The other ones that we're going to talk about and coming up, you're going to find other ways that they're handled. The priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Remember how they would cut up the meat? Why did they cut up the meat into pieces? Because they were serving it to the Lord. He was going to receive this as a meal, as something that was offered up to him with this pleasing fragrance, this pleasing aroma, that it was a, it was a gift given to him saying, Lord, this is all we have to give that you would receive it and that we would be restored to you and that we would receive your blessing. And so, you know, you, uh, if you're going to cut up the meat to give to the Lord, you're going to give him the very best that you have. You're going to cut it in a way that is presented properly uh, before the Lord. Our kids have almost made it to the point that we don't have to cut up their food anymore, uh, which is an amazing place to reach in life when you don't have to cut up food anymore for anybody. Um, this is the idea that, hey, we're going to cut this up and we're going to present it before the Lord because it's an offering given given to him. And, and it's a 
specifically mentioned as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. That type of language shows up in the Psalms. That same type of language shows up in the New Testament. That when we are giving sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord, it's this pleasing aroma that, that's given to him in worship. Uh, verses 10 through 13 is almost a complete repeat of, of what you've gotten up to this point. Only this time it's going to be an animal taken from the flock, a sheep or a goat. You go down to 14. There's a few different instructions that come in 14 through 17, but it's going to talk about birds. Why, why would you have the herd animals followed by the flock animals followed by the birds? Why, why is it set up like that? Sorry. Cost. Yeah. It's, it's a gracious provision for the poor. If you couldn't bring an animal from the herd, not because you didn't want to, but because you didn't have it to bring, God would make provision for you could bring another animal. You could bring a sheep or a goat. If things were really not going well economically for you, you could bring a bird or a pigeon before the Lord, which is an incredible sign of God's grace. We're saying you don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be in a particular economic class to come before me. You fast forward to the New Testament and think about the way the Lord uh, Jesus deals with people. It's not, hey, you have to have a certain economic standing to come before me. It's you come before me with what you have. You, you give of what you have. Even when Paul talks about financial giving in the church, it's this idea that you, you give in proportion to what you have. Yeah, Naomi. Please do. Yeah, you're going to get to uh, some sacrifices where you uh, involve the, the female animals. Actually, we'll get there next time. One commentator I read didn't land on any particular reasons. It probably comes back to the ancient culture of male-female value, honestly, that, that a male animal like a male child carried greater value, so there was, there was more uh, cost, more sacrifice involved there. That's the, that's the most common. Anybody else have any thoughts on that, though? Any other ways to look at it? That's true. Yeah, there may be just a very simple... I think it requires a male animal and a female animal, though. I'm not sure. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, yeah, I, there may be something. To, were you going to say something like that, Carl? Could be. Yeah. Yeah, very possible. Yeah, Carl was saying it could be a foreshadowing of how Christ uh, would come as a man, taking on flesh. Yeah. Whether that works in forward or reverse, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah, I wonder the same thing. And you will find female animals sacrificed in some of those offerings, offerings coming up there. So, yeah, that's a good point. I, it, nevertheless, it works really well when you're thinking about Christ coming as that, that offering for, for sins. Um, okay, let's wrap up with this because we're out of time. We're down to the... Uh, what are your New Testament connections on, on this? You don't have to turn over there. Let me just read them for you, and you can make a note. Your first New Testament connection, very quickly, is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, 
where it says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Christ in his love for us becomes that sacrifice so that we are able to be made right with God, so that our sins are atoned for, so that our relationship with God is, is restored. Um, in, in the New Testament, Christ is described both as the ransom, Mark chapter 10, that he came to seek and to save to be that ransom for us. It also talks about how he came in 2 Timothy, or in Titus 2, it talks about how he came to purify his people. So both of those ideas of sacrifice, purity and ransom, are described in the New Testament in reference to what Jesus did for us. So Ephesians 5, Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Then in response to his sacrifice, you get Romans chapter 12, verse 1, down on the very bottom of your notes there. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. You may have memorized that in language just a little bit different, but, but this is holy and pleasing to God. We've offered ourselves to him. This is your true and proper worship. Christ has sacrificed so that we would have life, and so we live sacrificially in response to who he is and what he's done for us. Let me circle back around to what we talked about earlier, and we'll end with this. What does it mean to live sacrificially before the Lord? What is God calling us to do? What is he calling us to, uh, to be as a church? That we wouldn't give sacrifices that are cheap, that we would give of our, of our very best. We'd give our whole lives before him. So bow your heads with me. I want to be able to pray together and give you a chance to think through that, and then we'll wrap up. Father, I know as I was thinking about this this afternoon, there's a certain fear that comes when we start thinking about what does it mean to, to make sacrifices. We know we don't do that to, to gain standing with you. The whole purpose of what we see in Leviticus and what we see fulfilled in Jesus is the only way that we can come before you. The only way the light of that lamp could shine on the bread, the only way that your glory can shine on us, that we can be with you, is through sacrifice, ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus. And so, God, when we read about these sacrifices in Leviticus, we remember what he did for us. And it's only through him that we're made right with you. But, God, then when we, when we understand that, when we understand what it means to be made right with you, we want to give our whole lives for you. Not the leftovers, not just part of our lives, not something that is cheap. God, we want to give our lives fully for you. And God, I pray that that would be true of every one of us. I pray that would be true of Emmaus. That as we give our lives before you in worship and obedience, God, that we would give ourselves fully to you. Father, show us what that looks like. Help us to encourage one another as we move ahead. God, I pray that the more we study through Leviticus about these offerings and sacrifices, the more that we would be drawn back to worship of you through Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right.